0: I had a political column, and I also was the editor of a, of a magazine. I was very busy in that area for a while. But didn't so you long contemplate ago, everybody's forgotten.
1: running for office? And didn't Roosevelt encourage you to do it? Yes, he wanted me to, but I think he said he wanted
2: me to to make me happy. Roma Wines
3: presents Suspense. Roma wine, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world. Salud. Your health, senor. Roma Wines toast the world. The wine for your table is Roma Wine, made in California for enjoyment throughout the world.
4: This is the Man in Black, here to introduce this weekly half hour of suspense. Tonight from Hollywood, we bring you a star, Mr. Orson Welles. This will be the first of two consecutive performances by Mr. Wells, in which he will appear as the protagonist of Kurt Sjodmak's novel, Donovan's Brain. The producer of Suspense and its sponsors, the Roma Wine Company of Fresno, California, feel that this story is so unusual that it merits more than our usual time. So in somewhat of a departure from established radio formulas, we will bring you the story of Donovan's Brain in two parts. Part one you will hear tonight... And part two next Monday night at this same time. Before we take you to
3: the scene of our drama, let's take a little journey of a different kind.
5: On May 15, 1944, Orson Welles was placed on the U.S. Treasury payroll to consult for the duration of the war. His pay? An honorary one dollar. Three days later, Welles was the star of a seminal CBS broadcast. Although he'd appeared on suspense many times before. On May 18th, he was the lead in Part 1 of William Spears' production of Donovan's Brain, based on the 1942 Kurt Zildmack novel. Wells played Dr. Patrick Corey, who successfully learns to keep a brain alive outside the human body. The sound effects were outstanding for their time. Donovan's Brain is considered one of the first adult science fiction broadcasts.
4: And with the performance of Orson Welles as Dr. Patrick Corey,
5: we again hope to keep you in suspense!
1: As I sit now outside my laboratory door writing under the heading Experiment 87, this final entry in my casebook, I know that these are the last words I shall ever write upon this earth. I neither ask nor expect forgiveness now or hereafter, but for those who seek some explanation I refer them simply to this casebook, let them read it carefully from its first entry on that ill-starred day of July the 13th. July 13th. Today I bought a small capuchin monkey from an organ grinder. The animal trembled with fear when I took it into my laboratory and when I tried to pet it, it bit me. I had to make it trust me completely. Fear causes an excess secretion of adrenaline resulting in an abnormal condition of the bloodstream which would throw up my observations. So I fed it and finally the creature voluntarily crept up into my arms uttering little whimpers of content. When it laid its head against my shoulder, I stabbed it with a surgical lancet. It died instantly. (laughs) Well, David, what do you think of it? Well, it, it's pretty amazing, all right. see what I've done, don't you? I, I think so. You think so? Good Lord, don't you know? Well, after all that, I'm only a second-year medical I student. I what I was a second-year student? Who is it?
6: It's me, Janice.
1: Come in, darling.
6: Patrick, Dr. Schrott is
7: here to see you.
1: Oh, come on in, doctor.
6: You know our son David, of course.
8: Yes,
1: of course. How are you, my boy? Fine, thanks, doctor. Well, Patrick, hard at it as usual,
8: Uh
7: I see. Patrick, you didn't eat the lunch I sent in to you. You What is
1: it this time, Patrick? A brain. What? A brain, a brain, a monkey's brain. Oh. What about the brain, Patrick? I've been trying to see how long I can keep the tissue alive. Is that it, in that jar? There's considerably more to it than just a jar, though. Want to see how it works? Is it still alive? In a way, yes. It's a fairly simple device, actually. Doctor, variation corrals mechanical heart. The brain lies in a bath of blood serum. These... Rubber arteries are fixed to the vertebral and internal carotid arteries of the brain. The blood substance is forced through the cycle of willis to feed the tissue. Over here, I've installed a small rotary pump that forces the blood circulation, you see? But how
2: do you know it's alive?
1: It's very easy to determine. The brain, when functioning, gives off infinitesimal electrical impulses. They can be measured. As a matter of fact, I've hooked the encephrograph up to a small amplifying system. The brain impulses can actually be heard. Here, I'll turn it on. You see? Quite effective, isn't it? Yes, it's effective. And it's it's wrong, Patrick. Terribly wrong. I've tried to tell him, Dr. Schratt. In (laughs) heaven's name, what's wrong with this? Oh, Patrick, you and your mechanistic philosophy, trying to reduce life to a mere matter of chemicals and test tubes. The origin of life is from a higher domain than that, Patrick. And you're profaning. Nonsense. You can't stop the progress of science. Every discovery of whatever kind is a step forward. If I can prove that the brain can perform certain functions outside the body, who knows where we may be able to go from there? Oh, Patrick, how, how
0: do you know that thing in there doesn't feel pain?
1: How do you know it isn't writhing in agony? The brain tissue itself is insensitive, you know that. Just a feeling look. I'll switch on the encephalograph. See? There. Notice the faintness of the amplified alpha rays. Notice the comparatively slow rate of pulsation now. Notice what happens when I tap on the glass jar.
9: Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States.
8: My friends, yesterday, on June 4th, 1944, Rome fell to American and allied troops. The first of the Axis capitals
0: is now in our hands.
8: One up and two to go. It is perhaps significant that the first of these capitals to fall should have the longest history of all of them.
5: Of wrong goes back. Wells was a longtime supporter and campaign speaker for Franklin D. Roosevelt. He occasionally sent the president ideas and phrases, some of which were incorporated into FDR speeches. This fireside chat is from the evening of June 5th, 1944. On that night, Wells reprised his Jane Eyre role of Edward Rochester for the Lux Radio Theater.
8: Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. This is the beginning of a busy week for me... with Gary Cooper in the story of Dr. Wassell... opening in New York tomorrow night... and here in Hollywood on Wednesday. And tonight, the week is certainly off to a wonderful start... with two of our town's most accomplished artists... in one of the immortal love stories of the English language... Loretta Young and Orson Welles in Jane Eyre. Charlotte Bronte wrote Jane Eyre almost a century ago... and yet in a world at war...
5: That season, Lux was CBS's most popular show, with a 23.3 rating.
3: This is Robert St. John in the NBC Newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin, claiming that D-Day is here. Claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Uh, Let me read you several of the latest bulletins. One says... That a report unconfirmed by allied
5: sources of course early on the morning of june 6th reports confirmed the allied invasion of europe had begun the about amphibious landings on the normandy coast were preceded by bombardment and an airborne landing of 24000 allied troops shortly after midnight allied infantry and armored divisions began landing on the coast of france at 630 a.m. the target stretch of the normandy was divided into 5 sectors utah omaha gold juneau and Sword. Strong winds blew the landing crafts off course. The men landed under heavy fire from batteries overlooking the beaches, and the shore was littered with obstacles like wooden stakes, metal tripods, and barbed wire. Casualties were heaviest at Omaha with its high cliffs. At Gold, Juno, and Sword, several fortified towns were cleared in house-to-house fighting, two of Gold's gun emplacements, were disabled using specialized tanks. But only two of the beaches, Uno and Gold, were linked on the first day. That evening, Orson Welles took to the air with a special edition of his Almanac.
6: The following program will be interrupted to bring you any late news developments. Good evening, this is Orson Welles. Instead of our regular program at this time The makers of mobile gas and mobile oil And the Mercury Theater Bring you a special broadcast
7: My dearest son I guess June 6th and 7th Will be always remembered in history I know that none of us Will ever forget those days Even we who live at home your father will have more to remember about these two days and more to tell you i don't know where he is now as i write this somewhere in the north of france it must be but when he comes back and oh my dear little son i pray to god he will come back when he comes back i know he'll have a better story to tell than this anyway here's our side of it here on the home front That's what the papers call it, the home front. Sometimes I I feel kind of ashamed of that expression. It really isn't much of a front. We do have trouble getting houses, and there isn't much room on the streetcars. Sometimes the stake is a little tough, but there aren't any of us living on K-rations, and... Altogether, the war is pretty easy to fight here in sunny California. We work hard. Don't let anybody tell you we've let down because we haven't, and we won't.
5: Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau asked Wells to lead the Fifth War Bond Drive.
7: Nobody out here sleeps in a bomb shelter.
5: It opened on June 12th with a one-hour radio show from Texas over all four networks. June 12th was the same day all Normandy beachheads were finally connected. Ever since Monday night. The next week, Wells was at Soldier Field in Chicago, when this leg of the drive was broadcast.
10: Tonight, the Coca-Cola Company, sponsor of the Victory Parade of Spotlight Bands, is giving its time to the United States Treasury in order that you may hear a special war bond program from Soldier's Field in Chicago. Therefore, the Victory Parade of Spotlight Bands will not be broadcast, but will keep its date in person with the war workers of the Bruner Ritter Company at Bridgeport, Connecticut. Keep tuned to hear a gala floor show, among other headliners, Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau, Jr., Lana Turner, Jack Benny, Ray Bolger, Paul Lucas, and others. <laughs> I see flashing that this America is only you and me. Its power, weapons, testimony are you and me. Its crimes, lies, thefts, defections are you and me. Its Congress is you and me. The officers, capitals, armies, ships are you and me. Freedom, language, poems, employments are you and me. Past, present, future are you and me. and gentlemen, the Secretary of the United States Treasury, Mr. Henry Morgenthau,
3: Jr. This America is you and me. When you lend your government money for this war, you join a great crusade. General Eisenhower has called it that, a great crusade. Your bond is a symbol of your part in that crusade. Your money goes to the men fighting for us in this desperate war. They need that money, every penny you can raise. They need it more than ever before. They need it now for ships and planes and tanks and bombs and bullets, for all the engines of destruction by which they mean to fight or surrender from the enemy on their own ground and to blast a sure foundation for the peace. They need money for war and they need it also for mercy. Mercy is expensive too. The medical department of the army has spent approximately $1 billion since Pearl Harbor So far this year, we've spent more than $5 million for penicillin alone. We spent millions more, many millions, to fly the wounded and sick out of battle areas. Last year, we flew more than 170,000 wounded men to the safety of hospitals. 170,000 men. And out of that number, 11 men died. The rest was saved. Your bond helped save those men. America's great only if it puts the purposes of war before the war itself.
5: Americans were encouraged to buy $16 billion in bonds to finance the most violent phase of the war. When this bond drive ended on July 8th, U.S. citizens had raised almost $21 billion in war loans
3: from tyranny, from fear,
2: from physical,
3: moral, and economic bondage. the time
2: for the last speaker. The final speech has for its title False Issues and the American Presidency. I take pleasure in presenting to you a distinguished representative of the theater and an editor of the Free World magazine, Austin Welles.
0: Thank you, Mrs. Reed, distinguished guest, ladies and gentlemen. Before proceeding with a prepared speech, I would like to say that I am very sorry that Mrs. Lewis has left before I had a chance to ask her on what date Mr. Roosevelt renounced the League of Nations. I cannot believe that there are many serious people who privately deny the greatness of Franklin Roosevelt, I think that even most Republicans, I think that even most Republicans are resigned to it that when the elections are over and the history books are written, our president will emerge as one of the great names in one of democracy's great centuries. The Republicans are correct and wholly loyal. To the American tradition.
5: Wells campaigned for the Roosevelt Truman ticket almost full-time in the fall of 1944, traveling to nearly every state at his own expense to the detriment of his health. But
0: the very worst tone for such a campaign is the tone of reproach.
5: On October 18th he filled in for Roosevelt opposite New York Governor and Republican presidential nominee Thomas E. Dewey. It was at the New York Herald Tribune Forum and broadcast on the Blue Network.
0: in this election by way of choice. If the people assume that the alternative is a mere retreat to the so-called normalcy of Mr. Hoover, the black years of poverty and despair, it is because the people haven't heard sufficient testimony to contradict that fear. And I do not expect that the people can fully receive in their affections men who have tried to make so little of other men who have done so much. Here, New field has had a most profound influence on the thinking of Republican leaders. But a studious examination of the latest Republican pronouncements doesn't establish that the grand old party is broken with its well-known restrictionist attitudes, nor with its ancient reluctance to admit the government's responsibility to the welfare of the whole people. Republican pledges, made in this campaign seem affirmative only when they duplicate or promise to duplicate Democratic New Deal accomplishments, indeed. While Governor Dewey's endorsement of these New Deal pronouncements is oblique enough, its sum is the most valid possible tribute to Mr. Roosevelt and to the achievements of the Roosevelt administration. Republican proposals, however, are not for the enlargement of these measures, but for their limitation. Limitation is the dominant theme of their current approach, and their program at its most legible can be most fairly described as reformist. But the temper of the times is not the mood of reform. It is impossible for the people not to feel now that they are living through great days. I find everywhere the conviction that the beauty and practicability of the American idea has been reaffirmed in our time. The cue for loyal opposition was to match this outlook with a program equally affirmative and more positive. Here I think the Republicans have missed their cue. I think they have misjudged the electorate again. I think they would be wiser if they promised to do more, but as a Roosevelt partisan, I'm frank to say that I'm glad they aren't making such promises, because I don't believe they could keep them. These are days when promises are believed, because we have seen promises kept. There is, I noticed with pleasure, a difference of opinion at this bipartisan meeting. The people, some of whom are not in this room, the people are full of hope. And if the people are to be moved from their devotion to Roosevelt's leadership, it can only be done by encouraging greater hopes, never by inoculating the people with dismay. The labor question, just for example, a great deal has been said on the Republican side of this election argument about the laxity of labor in the war effort, and much has been made of wartime strikes. The cheerful sacrifice, the heroic and easy skill of our American fighting men is something for all our grandchildren to boast of, and it's a fact that American victories on the fighting fronts are only possible because of the war record of the American production job but still the Republicans harp on wartime strikes. Yet the fact remains unchallenged that not a single soldier, not a single sailor, or a single aviator in our armed forces has lacked a single gun or a single bullet or a single plane for the failure of labor to produce it. This is from General Marshall's instructions, document number two, War Department, Washington, 25 D.C., fact sheet number 29. Note to orientation officers, the problems given in the press to accounts of strikes has sometimes tended to overshadow the positive achievement of labor in the war effort, unquote. Bear in mind, please. This is from General Marshall's official document. Again, I quote. The production front record of management of labor is magnificent. It needs and should have no apology. Only publicity and understanding, unquote. Further, by way of inoculating dismay, the Republican candidate has not hesitated to announce the existence of what he calls a democratic plot to keep our fighting men in uniform past the time of need for their service. And we have actually heard it stated by at least one other prominent Republican spokesman that our heroic dead in this war are dead as a result of Mr. Roosevelt's foreign policy. What is to be said in answer to this sort of argument? With most other Americans, I believe that our dead fell in this war for a purpose. With most other Americans, I believe that purpose to be the destruction of fascism. With most other Americans, I believe that our president was the first to warn us against fascism and the first to urge our preparedness for this anti-fascist war. Ladies and gentlemen, you have heard the third
8: and final in the series of broadcasts by the Blue Network of the Herald Tribune's Forum, presenting Governor Thomas E. Dewey, Claire Luce Booth, congressman from Connecticut, Mrs. Helen Gahagan-Douglas, candidate for Congress from California, and the brilliant young actor, Orson Welles. And there's just one note I should like to stress. In all these speeches, Mrs. Luce brought out one point that religion must mark the peace, for we have made ourselves the children of superpower, and where has that brought us? We are the children first of supreme power.
0: This is
8: the Blue Network.
5: The next week, Wells made an appearance on The Charlie McCarthy Show. (laughs) The of Chase and
6: Sanborn Coffee bring you Edgar Bergen, Charlie McCarthy, and Mortimer Snerd, with Ray Noble and his orchestra, Joan Merrill, yours truly, Jim Amici, and Charlie's special guest, Orson Welles. And now we have a song by that lovely, vivacious, charming personality,
2: none other than... Your
6: obedient servant, Orson Welles. You may applaud if you care to. What is it? That's quite all right, gentlemen. Don't bother to curtsy. Orson Welles. Long time, no see.
2: But not long enough. Yeah.
6: (laughs) Ah, Charles, Charles, it's indeed a great pleasure to meet my old compatriot and worthy opponent of many a battle of wits. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Gee, do you mean that or... Or is this a booby trap? (laughs) Yes, Charles, I really mean it. Well, that's nice, gentlemen. Then we should have a very pleasant reunion this evening. Oh, I'm sorry, Edgar, but I must hurry off to give a very important lecture at the museum tonight. You give a lecture at the museum? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I'll have you know I have brains. I'm not just a pretty face. (laughs) No,
2: you're not,
6: Charlie? but. Let's attend Orson's lecture tonight Yeah Yeah, that has possibilities, yeah oh, I doubt if you can find me I'll be on the third floor among the anthropoid apes Well, wear your hat so we'll know you Yuck,
2: yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs>
6: We have very funny lines here tonight, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, please uh, stick to the script, Orson Maybe he can't read, oh no. Well, I shall prove it. I shall prove it by doing a reading. It's only Orson Welles who do it. Would you like to hear a soliloquy from Hamlet or a speech from Julius Caesar? I'd like to hear a song from Joe Merrill. Oh, that's nice of you, Charlie. I'll be glad to sing for you. You mean I don't give my reading? Oh, no. Very well. May I say it was nice being among friends,
5: even though they weren't mine. (laughs) Goodbye. He accompanied FDR to Boston for his last campaign rally on Saturday, November 4th. It drew 40,000 people to Fenway Park. On election eve, Wells appeared on the Democratic National Committee program. The most important question surrounding the election was, which potential leader would be best suited to lead the peace effort? This
8: is Humphrey Bogart. I'm a registered voter in the 16th Congressional District of California. I'm one of a number of people from a great many walks of life who come here tonight of our own free will because we have a deep and common interest in the outcome tomorrow of the most important election in this history of our country. We're here to tell you why we're going to vote a certain way, and what we've got to say will come straight from the shoulder, even if it's sung sometimes instead of spoken. Personally, I'm voting for Franklin D. Roosevelt because I think he's one of the world's greatest humanitarians. And because he's leading our fight against the enemies of a free people in a free world. Millions of other people are for him for the same reason, or perhaps very different reasons. And a few of these people are here with us tonight to let you in on their particular angle. Some have come from long distances, like the man at my elbow who reaches his microphone by way of
2: Cambridge, Massachusetts, San Diego, and Tarawa. My name is Harry Candler. I joined the Navy at the age of 48 because I felt the danger confronting us. I felt that the security of my children and your children was at stake. Last September, Mrs. Kendler and I lost a son somewhere in France. Another son is in the Army. Until I was disabled after our, I did everything possible in the Navy to fulfill my obligation to my children. Right now, I'd like to say this. If our president is defeated, I will feel as though I were defeated because he typifies everything I felt I was fighting for. I want to hold on to our social games. I wouldn't want to see my shipmates living in shacks in empty lots. It isn't easy to forget the Hoovervilles after the First World War. Most important, I don't want a Third World War. I don't want to risk my third son's life at the untried and inexperienced hands of a city district attorney. I'm sure you don't. Standing now at a microphone in New York is
8: a man who saw action 12,000 miles from Towawa. An Italian boy from the Bronx.
5: Go ahead, Jim. Tuesday, November 7th, 1944, Election Day. New York's Republican governor and former district attorney Thomas Dewey, who'd once taken down Murder Inc., faced Democrat Franklin D. Roosevelt, seeking an unprecedented fourth term.
2: But to be in your own state by your own governor.
5: That evening, Gabriel Heater took to the air. Time for Gabriel Heater and his
0: up-to-the-minute news of the world, brought to you by Four Hands F-O-R-H-A-N-S, four Hands Toothpaste. If your gums bleed when you brush your teeth or are tender to touch, listen carefully. These are often signs of gingivitis, a common gum inflammation which four out of five may have. If prompt attention isn't paid, it may lead to pyorrhea with its receding gums and loosening teeth, which only your dentist can help see your dentist, and at home help guard against gingivitis by massaging gums twice daily with Forehands toothpaste. Forehands is the formula of Dr. R.J. Forehand, the first and original toothpaste for both massaging gums to be
4: firmer and cleaning teeth to their natural brilliance. And now, Gabriel Heater. Good evening, everyone. This news will cheer the hearts of all Americans in all parties. Admiral Halsey's score for the two-day air battle over Luzon is now 440 Jap planes destroyed and 30 merchant and warships sunk or damaged. News to cheer the hearts of all Americans. I'm told all transmitters in Berlin are being kept open all night for the election returns. There's so much keen interest in Nazi Germany in our election returns tonight. Well, count on this. The next president, whether his name be Roosevelt or Dewey, will fight Germany until her war machine is brought to its knees, until Germany announces she surrenders unconditionally. And that being so, what possible interest can Germany have in our election returns? You and I have a great deal of interest in those returns, and here from Mutual's newsroom, where the tickers are pouring in the very last complete roundup, based on figures compiled exactly 20 seconds ago... They show 530,400 popular votes for President Roosevelt. That's more than half a million. 362,100 popular votes for Dewey. And I may say they've been running pretty much along that ratio for the past half hour. That is out of a total vote, however, of only 890,000. Under a million. And there are 50 million votes which may be counted before the totals are in. You may be interested in knowing roughly how these totals are shaping up in several states. But before I give you that, let me say this. Roosevelt, based on these compilations, now has a combined electoral vote, or is leading in states having a combined electoral vote of 196. 17 states having a combined electoral votes of 196 show the president ahead. Governor Dewey and 15 states having a combined electoral vote of 173...
5: When the results were finally in, it was an electoral landslide. FDR carried 36 states and won 432 of the 531 electorates. However. FDR only won by about 3 million total votes, carrying 53% to Dewey's 46. There was beginning to be a public question as to whether Roosevelt could survive another term. On Friday, November 10th, the president returned to Washington. NBC News was there.
9: The ball program usually heard at this time will be momentarily delayed for a special broadcasts. Friday morning, November the 10th, the President of the United States of America, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, returns to the nation's capital. Washington has turned out this morning to greet the first, fourth-term President of the United States. This is Kenneth Banghart speaking from our NBC microphones here at Union Station, which we set up just beside the President's private railroad car. President Roosevelt's train pulled in about 8.30 this morning, and right now his special car was moved down to another track where we're standing, and in the background you can hear the Metropolitan Police Band of Washington as they play Hail to the Chief. He is going to leave now and go out to the Union Station Plaza for his drive to the White House. These informal receptions by the citizens and officials of Washington have grown to be a custom here on the nation's capital. First in 1936, and again in 1940, hundreds of thousands have turned out to greet the chief executive on his return to Washington after his re-election. The crowds, of course, are outside Union Station here, just beyond us, out in the Union Plaza. And when he gets out there, we're going to switch you over there so that you can hear the reception that he'll receive. Government offices here in the district have given their employees some time off to be on hand to greet the president. Our schools here in the district weren't closed this morning, but teachers are going to accept notes from parents who want their children to be on hand. And from the looks of things, as we came down here this morning, there certainly were a lot of them that wanted to be here. All the offices of the District of Columbia Municipal
5: Government closed this morning, too.
9: Yesterday afternoon, wartime restrictions on advanced news of the president's movements were lifted. So it's been announcements of the time of the president. That weekend,
5: the Battle of Batina began in Croatia, and the Japanese island of Iwo Jima faced heavy U.S. bombardment. On Sunday, November 12th, CBS News gave updates.
3: World News Today, brought to you by Admiral Corporation, in behalf of Admiral distributors and dealers all over America and in many foreign lands. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations and leading news centers in our own country, CBS reporters are waiting to bring you first hand news from the world's political and battlefronts. Now, here's Douglas Edwards. The world heard indirectly from Hitler for the first time in 17 weeks today. He didn't broadcast, but he issued a proclamation containing all the old Nazi diatribes and claims that victory for Germany is certain, with the preservation of Germans of first importance. At the same time, the German Volkssturm, the People's Army, swore allegiance to the Fuhrer and pledged unconditional resistance to the Allies. Reichsminister Minister Goebbels spoke at the ceremonies and said
5: regiments of the People's Army would be used to bolster any critical section of the front... Orson Welles spent the rest of November recuperating. Rita Hayworth was pregnant with their first child. Welles made only three additional appearances on the air before December 17th. May 1st, 1835. It's a cold and rainy moving day. Every renter in New York is out on the street looking for lodging. Most of the city's quarter million live below Houston Street in buildings four stories or smaller. But construction is booming.
7: Rich and ragged with furniture, wagons, carts, drays,
9: ropes, canvases, straw packers, porters, and beer haulers. White, yellow, and black occupy the streets from east to west, north to south. Everyone I spoke to on this subject complained of this custom is most annoying, but all assured me it was unavoidable for renters. More than one of my New York friends have bought or built houses solely to avoid this annual inconvenience.
5: New people are pouring onto New York's dangerously overcrowded streets by the thousands. It seemed to me that the city was fine before some awful calamity. I said colonel. What in heaven is the matter? Everyone was bitching out their furniture and packing it off. He laughed and said this was the general moving day. Seemed kind of a frolic, as if they were changing houses just for the fun. Eh, so the world goes. It would take a good deal to get me out of my log house. But yeah, I understand many persons move each year. Rich and poor, many come to earn an honest living. Others, for more nefarious reasons, And it's the perfect place to begin. Coming soon, Burning Gotham. A new scripted audio fiction series about the fastest growing city in the world. And the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, please subscribe to this audio feed. Or go to BurningGotham.com